Part two of Exeter by Sidney Heath. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cathedral. The present cathedral church of the Diocese of Exeter may be said to be the third building that has stood on the site. Nothing remains of the Saxon church elevated to the dignity of a cathedral when the bishopric was removed from Crediton and of the Norman church, erected by Warrelwast, a nephew of the Conqueror, only the two massive towers are standing, the remainder of the building belonging almost entirely to the late decorated style, of which it is one of the most beautiful examples we possess. The city of Exeter does not appear to have been divided into parishes until the year 1222, in pursuance then, no doubt, of Archbishop Langton's constitution of the same year the cathedral itself was first constituted a parish by being placed under the charge of a single dignitary the dean by bishop brewer in twelve twenty five four years after he ascended the throne in ten forty two edward the confessor gave the united bishopric of crediton and cornwall to his chaplain leofric who observing that crediton was an open town difficult to fortify against the danish raiders obtained from pope leo the ninth permission to remove the episcopal see to exeter when the benedictine minister of saint mary and saint peter became the cathedral church of the diocese although no part of this church remains an ancient seal of the cathedral is of special interest as showing some of the architectural features of the saxon church it depicts the west front with two towers the northern square and the southern circular the latter surmounted by a cross and pierced by three round openings in the walls there are two porches one in the centre the other in the north tower and the walls show indications of characteristic saxon masonry on the central roof is a large flesh or turret of two stages carrying a weathercock on a very tall shaft of the succeeding church the only contemporary pictorial representations we have are those on early and somewhat imperfect seals dating from the end of the eleventh century the first has a church with cresting of fleur-de-lis on a hipped and tiled roof two gable crosses flanking pinnacles an arcaded clerestory and a double door with ornamental hinges on each side of which is a catrefoil opening the second seal shows an arcaded building standing on a stone plinth of four courses and flanked by towers with conical roofs and ball finials the roof is surmounted by a large fleur-de-lis and exhibits an unusual form of tiling a third seal eleven ninety four to twelve hundred six shows the west front of the cathedral with two western towers and a central porch and a large roof turret another view of the west front occurs on the seal of the archdeacon's official twelve sixty seven and in this example there are three pointed towers the central one carrying a cross the others being capped with flag vanes in the doorway stands a figure of the official the two norman transeptal towers still standing give the cathedral a unique appearance this arrangement being found nowhere else in england save at the highly interesting and not far distant collegiate church of ottery st mary having thus briefly sketched from pictorial evidence the architectural characteristics of the predecessors of the present cathedral we may begin our tour of the building 
exeter is known as a cathedral of the old foundation as in pre-reformation days it was served by secular canons and as such it was not refounded by henry the eighth so that there has been no break in the continuity of its ecclesiastical history since its original institution in the days of leofric with the exception of carlisle which was served before the reformation by augustinian or austin canons all the cathedrals of the old foundation were served by secular canons it must be remembered that although nearly the whole of the architectural merit of the cathedral lies in the interior and particularly in the magnificent stone vaulting of the roof which is the high watermark of vaulting on a large scale in england there are several portions of the exterior that are worth noting externally the great defect of the building is the low elevation of the body and the want of a central tower to counteract the heavy effect produced by solid square towers at each transept the west front with its low embattled screen of figures is not a very happy architectural composition and is not to be compared to the west fronts of lincoln and peterborough where the figure sculpture is earlier and better executed than at exeter the one redeeming feature of an otherwise unimposing west front is the decorated tracery of the great window now filled with modern and not very satisfactory glass in memory of archbishop temple who was bishop of exeter from eighteen sixty nine to eighteen eighty five the elevation of this front consists of three stories the basement screen containing three portals above this is the west wall of the nave and above this again is the nave gable in which is inserted a smaller window of the same character as the larger one the apex of the gable has a canopied niche within which is a much restored effigy of st peter the sloping walls built on each side as if purposely to conceal the buttresses of the nave and its aisles give this portion of the church an awkward perspective and tend to diminish the apparent height of the whole facade the screen itself was the last important addition to be made to the fabric by bishop brantingham thirteen seventy to thirteen ninety four and it is little more than a low stone scaffolding for holding the rows of figures of saints kings and other distinguished persons which fill the niches an attempt to identify these sixty-five individuals with the aid of early drawings and still earlier documents may be said to have established the identities of the majority of the effigies although they have suffered so much from rough treatment restoration and weathering that many of the saintly emblems and regal attributes are difficult to decipher at the present time two of the figures which were broken with falling were replaced by new and very indifferent figures by mr e b stevens some years ago it was found that the whole of this embattled screen was merely a stone veil erected for the purpose of protecting the original west front one or two stones were removed a little to the right of the north door of the west entrance and the inner mouldings exposed within the thickness of the wall is a little chapel dedicated to st radegrund in which bishop grandison prepared his tomb the north side of the cathedral can be viewed in its entirety from any part of the well-kept lawns beneath which lie the bones of the citizens of seven centuries but no stones mark their resting-places the most noticeable feature on this north side is the sturdy norman tower corresponding to its fellow on the south side 
the original purposes of which are still a matter of much discussion among antiquaries. Built by Bishop Warrelwas in the twelfth century, they stood as two distinct and independent towers, until Bishop Quivell, during the rebuilding of the cathedral in 1280-1291, ingeniously opened up the inside walls, supporting the remaining portions of the walls upon arches, thus forming the interiors of the towers into transepts. The exterior of the northern tower is plain walling for part of its height, when it is divided into four stages by horizontal bands, each stage containing elaborate Norman arcading, ornamented with zigzag moulding. It is surmounted with an embattled parapet, with a turret at each angle. In the north wall, a fine decorated window was inserted by Quivell, for the purpose of lighting his newly made transepts. To make way for this window, a portion of the arcading of the first stage was cut away. The towers are similar to each other, and they were formerly capped with spires. In 1752, the spire on the north tower was taken down, that on the south tower having been removed at a much earlier date. Just below the window on the face of the north tower are the masonry marks of the gable of a house. This was the old treasurer's house, wherein Henry the Seventh was lodged when he came to Exeter to put down Perkin Warbeck's rebellion. Near the north tower is the projecting north porch, with its embattled parapet. On the eastern side of the interior are the fragments of what was once a calvary, and on the central boss of the roof is a representation of the Agnus Dei. An apartment above is known as the Dog Whipper's Room, a relic of those days when an official was appointed, whose duty it was to keep stray dogs out of the sacred building. On the exterior of the clerestory wall, immediately above the porch, is a projection which marks the minstrel's gallery, and is lighted by a window. Along the whole length of the cathedral, from the west end of the nave to the east end of the choir, are the flying buttresses that counteract the thrust of the heavy roof vaulting of the interior. At the extreme eastern end of the cathedral, the Lady Chapel and its sister chantries can be seen to great advantage, with their windows filled with tracery. The great perpendicular east window is partially hidden by the more easterly portions of the fabric, but it contains some fine old glass on which are full-length representations of nineteen saints and patriarchs, and many armorial bearings. The full beauty of the glass can only be seen from the interior. The south side of the cathedral is very similar to the northern one, except that the portion east of the tower is hidden from view by the episcopal palace. Once inside the nave, which should be entered by the western portal, the dullest eye cannot fail to perceive the uniform character of the work, a quality which gives to this cathedral a congruity of structural forms and an architectonic value that is lacking in buildings which exhibit the styles of various periods. Here we see the complete architectural expression of one mastermind, although the edifice was erected under the supervision of successive bishops. The present cathedral was begun by Bishop Bronniscombe, 1258-1280, to whom is due a portion of the Lady Chapel. His successor, Quivell, 1280-1291, furnished designs for the entire rebuilding of the church, and how faithfully his successors adhered to these plans is proved by the fact that a great deal of this decorated building 
was erected at a time when the perpendicular style was in full swing all over the country with the exception of the great east window which is of the perpendicular period the whole of the interior is of the purest decorated work and is the finest as it is the most complete example of this style on a large scale in the country exception has been taken to the lack of height in the nave due to the low spring of the vaulting and there is some justification for the criticism the vaulting however is exceedingly beautiful and the long line of unbroken roof stretching from the west end of the nave to the east end of the choir is so charming a feature that when inside the building we no longer regret the absence of a central tower the bosses that unite the vaulting ribs represent a variety of subjects the last but one near the west window depicting the martyrdom of becket corbels from which the vaulting shafts spring are mostly sculptured heads of the plantagenets those on each side of the minstrel's gallery depict edward the third and queen philippa the gallery cuts into the triforium on its north side and contains niches in which are sculptured angels with musical instruments until the middle of the last century it was customary for the surpliced choir to sing the gloria in excelsis from the gallery on christmas eve the gothic arches of the nave large and beautiful rest upon massive clustered piers of purbeck marble the development of these piers as the building progressed westwards is clearly seen between the lady chapel and the choir is a pier of four shafts then one of eight which eventually develops into one of sixteen shafts repeated throughout the length of the nave although the tracery of the aisle windows is very varied in design each window on the north side has its counterpart on the south side and some of the tracery of these windows has a marked tendency to the flamboyant thus showing the lateness of much of the work at exeter for what is called the flamboyant style is contemporary in france with our perpendicular work which is a purely english style unknown on the continent the choir screen was put up by bishop stapledon fourteen sixty five but its height and effectiveness are sadly marred by the great organ placed upon it until comparatively recent years an altar stood on each side of this screen the great west window of the nave the beautiful tracery of which has already been alluded to was due to bishop grandison thirteen twenty seven to thirteen sixty nine the font at the western end of the south nave aisle was made specially for the baptism of princess henrietta while the nave pulpit erected in eighteen seventy seven to the memory of bishop pattison of melanesia is says the reverend baring gould much of a piece with the stuff turned out by clerical tailors and church decorators who furnish us with vulgar designs in illustrated catalogues the transepts as we have seen were bored by quivel through the two norman towers built by warrelwast and in consequence are of small dimensions in the north tower is the great bell called peter which was brought from clandaff by bishop courtenay towards the end of the fifteenth century and which weighs twelve thousand five hundred pounds the only heavier bell in this country being great tom of oxford the weight of which is seventeen thousand pounds peter was rung formerly by the united exertions of twenty-four men using two ropes and double wheels but it was cracked on fifth november sixteen eleven 
from a too violent ringing in commemoration of the gunpowder plot. In 1752, the bell was placed in the lower part of the tower, and so fixed in a massive framework of timber that it cannot now be rung. It is, however, used as a clock bell, and the sound of its deep notes can be heard at a great distance. The old clock in the same transept has been regarded as the gift of Bishop Courtenay, but this is doubtful, as from entries in the fabric rolls it seems that the clock was constructed more than a century before that prelate presided over the sea. If so, the clock would date from about 1317. This ancient clock is very remarkable, being constructed upon the idea that the earth, and not the sun, was the centre of the solar system. It shows the hour of the day and the age of the moon. The dial is about seven feet in diameter, and on it are two circles, one numbered from one to thirty for the age of the moon, the other numbered from one to twelve twice over for the hours. In the centre of the dial a semi-globe is fixed, representing the earth, around which a smaller globe indicating the moon revolves monthly, and by turning on its axis as it revolves, shows the various lunar phases. Between the two circles is a third globe representing the sun, with an attached fleur-de-lis, which points to the hours as the ball revolves around the earth. In 1760 more works were added, to show the minutes which are painted in a circle. The works of the clocks have been renewed many times, and are now placed in the disused chantry of Subchanter Silk, situated in the northeast corner of the transept, just below the ancient clock. On the eastern side of this transept is St. Paul's Chapel, now used as a vestry. The south transept, that corresponds with the northern one, is formed from the lower part of the south tower, which contains a fine set of bells, although only ten of them are now rung. There are some interesting monuments in this transept. Here are the great Courtenay tomb, originally occupying a place in the nave, the Elizabethan tomb of Sir John Gilbert, brother of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, and half-brother to Sir Walter Raleigh, and the monument to Sir Peter Carew. A niche in the wall holds a few fragments of sculptured stone, saved from the tomb of Leofric, first bishop of Exeter, who was buried in the crypt of his own church. A marble slab against the south wall is believed to be the resting place of Bishop John the Chanter, 1186-1191. A small door in this transept leads to the chapel of the Holy Ghost and to the chapter house. On the roof of the south choir aisle are bosses carved with representations of the heads of Edward I and Queen Eleanor. This aisle contains many interesting effigies, among them two of those of unknown knights, considered to commemorate Sir Humphrey de Bohun and Sir Henry de Raleigh. The body of the latter knight was the cause of a contention between the dean and chapter of the cathedral and the Dominican friars in the year 1301. The quarrel was a bitter one and lasted for five years. The dean and the chapter affirmed that from time immemorial and by special arrangements with the friars, they had the right to have all bodies which were intended to be buried in the Dominican church, with the exception of those which belonged to the convent, brought to the cathedral with the usual wax and offerings for the first mass. The friars refused to allow Sir Henry Raleigh's body to be taken to the cathedral, and they claimed the wax and offerings. 
after a lengthy dispute the executors and friends of the knight took his body to the cathedral where the usual mass was celebrated after which the body with the bier and pall belonging to the friars was carried back to the convent doors the friars now refused to readmit the body upon which the executors took it again to the cathedral and after keeping it for a day and a night and the friars still refusing to receive it they carried it to be buried in the cathedral as it could not be left longer unburied owing to the stench fetare on the south side of the isle is the chapel of st james which was built by bishop marshall and restored by quivel in the early decorated style the vaulting and the windows are similar to those of the choir aisles over it was formerly the muniment room but in eighteen seventy the archives were removed to the chapter house for greater safety during some excavations a crypt was found beneath the chapel with a finely groined roof the crypt now contains the machinery used for blowing the organ the next chapel on the south side is the chantry of bishop oldham or St. Saviour's Chapel, richly decorated with carvings, among which the owl of the bishop, forming part of the rebus of his name, is prominent. His armorial bearings are also charged with the three owls. The effigy of the prelate rests beneath an ogee arch, and is lavishly coloured, although the original work has been restored by Corpus Christi College, Oxford, in memory of Bishop Oldham, who contributed six thousand marks to the collegiate foundation on the south side of the lady chapel is saint gabriel's chapel built by bishop bronniscombe in honour of his patron saint here lies the effigy of the bishop in a carved and richly gilded tomb the chapel of saint mary magdalene originally built by bronniscombe was altered by quibble it has a perpendicular screen and some fifteenth-century glass in the east window close by on the north side of the north choir aisle is sir john speke's chantry or st george's chapel of perpendicular work and containing the effigy of the knight when the cathedral was divided into two parts in puritan days a doorway was made where the altar now stands leading into east peter's on the north side of the choir aisle is st andrew's chapel corresponding with that of st james on the south by the north wall is the large sixteenth-century monument of sir gawain carew his wife and his nephew sir peter carew fifteen seventy one the effigy of the last named is cross-legged and so late an example of this disposition of the lower limbs supports the now generally accepted archaeological fact that the cross-legged attitude had no particular reference to the romantic wars of the crusades other interesting monuments in this aisle are the cross-legged effigy of sir richard de stapledon half-brother to the bishop and that of bishop stapledon the latter although in the choir is seen to better advantage from below a story runs to the effect that while sir richard was riding one day in london with his brother a cripple laid hold of his horse by one of the forelegs throwing both horse and rider to the ground and causing the knight's death hence the name cripplegate bishop stapledon was treasurer to edward the second and held london against queen isabella the bishop was taken prisoner and condemned to death at a mock trial he was beheaded at cheapside and his body cast on a rubbish heap 
whence it was eventually taken to Exeter and accorded an honourable burial. No examples of miserere carvings are known in English churches before the 13th century, and the set at Exeter are probably the earliest we have, the character of their foliage denoting the early English period. They are thought to have been the gift of Bishop Brewer, 1224-1244. The complete set numbers 49, and among the subjects represented are a merman and a mermaid, an elephant and a knight slaying a leopard. Choir stalls carved to illustrate the Benedicite, the pulpit, and the Reredos are all modern, having been erected from designs by Sir Gilbert Scott. The lofty tapering bishop's throne, an essential feature of every cathedral church, is the most remarkable of the choir fittings. It has been ascertained from the fabric rolls that it was a gift of Bishop Stapledon, 1465, and the exact sum paid for the work and timber was just under thirteen pounds, a considerable sum of money when its modern equivalent is calculated. The throne consists of a series of pinnacles and niches, rising in diminishing tiers until the crowning pinnacle almost reaches to the clerestory window. There is not a single nail in the whole of this canopied seat, although it rises to a height of more than sixty feet from the choir floor. It has been taken to pieces on at least two occasions, once by the son of Bishop Hall, when it was hidden away during the civil wars to save it from Cromwell's troopers, and a second time by Sir Gilbert Scott for the purposes of cleaning. It is highly probable that the oak of which it is made came from Chudley, some ten miles away, where the bishops of Exeter had a palace of which fragments remain in Palace Farm. The beautiful stone sedilia was due to Stapledon. Above the seat are three arches, ten feet in height, surmounted by elaborately designed tabernacle work. The arches spring from three carved heads, reputed to be those of St. Edward the Confessor, Leofric and Edith. The Lady Chapel is at the eastern end of the choir, from which it is separated by a broad ambulatory, and within it are the tombs of Bishop Stafford, Bronuscombe, Simon of Apulia, and Bartholomew, as well as the tomb of Sir John Dodderidge. A plain slab marks the resting place of Bishop Quivel, the stone bearing an incised cross, and around it the inscription, Petra tegit Petrum, Nihil officiat sibi tetrum. The large number of interments in the Lady Chapels was due to the perfectly natural desire of our forefathers to be laid to rest in the chapel dedicated to the Blessed Virgin. The cloister stood formerly on the south side, in front of the chapter house. They were so sadly mutilated by the Cromwellian troopers that houses were erected and a weekly market held on the site. In 1887, a portion of the ruinous cloister was restored, so that a new cathedral library could be placed above it for the purpose of housing the valuable libraries bequeathed to the cathedral, no more space being available in the chapter house. An interesting manuscript, preserved in the library of the Devon and Exeter Institution, contains many references to the city which have not been recorded by other historians. With reference to the cloisters, the unknown author of this manuscript says, 1657, the cloisters near to Peter's church was converted into the Surge Market, which was before in Southgate Street. 1660, 
the wall which divided east and west peters was taken down in december and in the month following the surge market was removed out of the cloisters and carried again into southgate street where it was before although the uniting of several parishes into one was again made void and each parish to enjoy her own privileges and liberties as before when daniel defoe visited exeter in 1723 it had the largest surge market in england next to leeds although the close has not succeeded in retaining any of its gates it is interesting by reason of the few old houses that still surround it whilst behind their gabled roofs rises the double-towered cathedral completing the picturesqueness of a really charming scene of which the prevailing tone is a dark grey stained and almost blackened by weathering and by age in the fourteenth century the close at exeter was enclosed with walls and until comparatively recent times it was built over the well-kept close is peculiar to england the bishop's palace dates from about thirteen eighty one and is supposed to have been either built or enlarged by bishop courtenay it was in a very ruinous condition when bishop philpot set to work to restore it when many old fragments of masonry were let into the new work the fine archway leading into the cloisters was put up at this time and the large oriel window of the library came from another old house in exeter within the hall of the palace is an ancient chimney-piece erected about fourteen eighty six upon which are sculptured the courtney arms and badges the arms of england and the emblem of st anthony during the commonwealth the palace came into the possession of a sugar-baker and the succeeding bishop was content to leave him undisturbed the next occupant of the sea however turned the sugar-baker out of the house which he occupied himself several traces of the sugar refinery were discovered when the palace was restored by bishop philpotts the palace gardens are very extensive and are bounded on the south side by the remains of the city wall upon which is now a pleasant walk near the centre of the wall is a curious building generally known as the lollard's prison although whether it ever was used for this purpose is a matter of conjecture one of the finest views of the cathedral is that obtained from a corner of the lawn in the palace gardens end of part two